If you have God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me to our study in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> we continue on in our study within this epistle. We'll be focusing in on verses 11 and 12, but we'll begin our time reading beginning in verse 9. So it's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Hear now the reading of God's most holy and living word. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, as the grounds of our faith and the very substance of our joy, It's both our duty and delight to rejoice in You. As we turn our attentions now to Your Word, we pray that You would bless us by revealing to us more of Christ our Savior, that You would reveal more to us of His merits by causing Your goodness to pass before us and by speaking peace into our hearts. Strengthen us to persevere and give no rest until Christ reigns supreme within us, in our every thought, within our every deed, and with every word that we speak, in a faith that purifies the heart, that overcomes the world, and works by love. By the Spirit, draw us near and drive us now to cling unto no other name but Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. What must I do to be saved? This is an all-important question that can be responded to and answered with great clarity, simplicity, and with biblical precision. However, the answer to the second all-important question of how can I know that I'm saved is one that's multifaceted multi-layered, and is one that's often prone to misunderstanding and distortion. Following the severe warnings from the writer of Hebrews, says, For it's impossible for those who fall away to renew themselves again to repentance, to the pastoral encouragement of, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. We now find ourselves face to face with the doctrine of assurance. Now what exactly is assurance? If I can quickly define this word, assurance, it's the personal and sure confidence that you've been born again through Jesus Christ and that in Him you've been forgiven, renewed, and eternally secured. In other words, assurance is the certainty that through Jesus Christ, you are a child of God and an heir of His promises. 
Now, true Christian assurance is one of the most important aspects when it comes to the Christian life. The reason being, as we've just read and we'll study tonight, is because assurance is the vital lifeline directly correlated to our perseverance. It plays a key role in our sanctification, our personal holiness. And in a very real sense, the Word of God teaches us that it's those who do have a full assurance of faith that are the happiest and the most content and the most productive and fruitful, loving and serving. So insofar as assurance is fundamental for our perseverance and personal holiness, we find that it also plays a vital role in the whole of the Christian life. Yet despite recognizing this, that the doctrine of assurance has historically, if we recognize and study assurance, it's historically, since the fall, been one that caused and has been the source of severe tension to many people. To many within the church, this doctrine of assurance It's a doctrine that they say that you know, but you really don't know. Something that you can comprehend, but a doctrine that you can never really grasp. But despite this tension, whether you feel confident that you're saved or you feel the weight of unbreakable doubt, what we find here in our passage tonight is that it's God's desire, it's His will for each and every believer to have deep-rooted assurance. The reason being that it's within this doctrine, this confidence, if you will, this biblically-driven experience of assurance designed by God, it's within this doctrine that then drives every believer to an eternal comfort and joy found in none other than Jesus, than our Lord. While on the other hand, the lack of assurance is one that breeds the most miserable of experiences. Heartache, anxiety, restlessness, lack of productivity, joylessness. And many of you would agree with me either because this is something that you've dealt with in the past or are dealing with today in the now. Assurance or the lack thereof is one of the most common struggles found within the church doors today. And so it's fundamental for us as we study this doctrine that we not only study how to obtain assurance, but that we rightly understand the root that then gives fruit to that assurance. Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, Assurance made David divinely fearless and it made him recklessly careless. This to say that it's not merely about having assurance, but rather also having the right grounds for that assurance. Now there are two general perspectives of assurance that are common today. There exist some traditions out there that I'm not going to name, that there exists some traditions that altogether reject assurance. Believing that assurance is a kind of abnormal state that's rooted in a disposition of pride and presumption. They say things like this, I mean, how can you really know that you're saved after all? 
And they would argue that the best way to live your life is to doubt that you'll never make it. And therefore, in this doubt, you'll continue to work and work and work and work yourself into heaven. Well, on the other side, there exists traditions that look at assurance and they say, they say things like this. Assurance is easy. Just take the promises of the Bible and believe in it. Take the statements of the Bible, plug in your name, write in your name, and there you go. There you have it. You have assurance. It's simple. Keep it simple. The Bible clearly say, says we're to have it, so just take it for yourselves, believe it in your heart, in your head, and just do it. And so what we have here, now in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 to 12, is the remedy to both of these incorrect polar opposite views on assurance. Now, I would like to submit to you this evening that this passage specifically teaches us two significant truths regarding this doctrine. First, that all of God's people have the duty to attain full assurance. That it's God's desire, His will, for each and every one of you to know that you're saved and secured for eternity. That He is yours and you are His. Second, that genuine assurance isn't stagnant nor inactive, but rather genuine assurance works by fueling faith and patience, perseverance. And these two truths will serve as our outline today. Now, I like creating these outlines for the book of Hebrews because of how complex it can be. So, just to make things a little easier to follow, here's the outline. Our first point is obtaining assurance. Obtaining assurance. And the second point is manifesting assurance. Manifesting assurance. So, here we go. First, obtaining assurance. Look down with me to verse 11. We read here. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. In last week's study, one of the main points that was made was that warnings do not contradict confidence. The warnings of God do not in any way, shape, or form blot out assurance, but rather the two weave together to serve one single purpose. We saw that the stern warnings of the writer intended to his readers proceeded from the very same pastoral heart as his words of encouragement that he wrote to them. And the evidences of his pastoral heart is continued on and it's seen here in these words. We read here in verse 11, We desire. Now this word for desire, epithumeo, is a word that communicates strong and deep-seated emotion. It's a word that's often used and could even be translated as lust or a strong longing for. In other words, it's a word that's closely tied together to the human inclination. It has deep-seated desires and emotions. And so verse 11 can be read like this. We strongly desire. We strongly, we, we yearn and long for with all of our being that each 
one of you show the same diligence. And so we find the writer here addressing his readers, as Chrysostom writes, not with the authority of a teacher, but with the affections of a father. The writer writes with an affection, longing to see his readers firmly established in the faith and well assured in Christ. Now I want you to notice the writer's desire for obtaining the full assurance of faith is directed to every single Christian. This to say that none of you in here, in Christ, are excluded from this calling, the very specific calling. What the writer has in view here is not just a few special people, not an elite group of people, not some kind of specially exclusive people, but his will is that every single individual believer within Christ's church to be filled with assurance. More specifically, he wants them to do what? Look down. To show forth the same diligence. Now the idea of showing here is the very same verb that's used in the previous verse, in verse 10. All your works in the labor of love, here it is, shown toward God's name. Meaning the idea here is not to show off, but rather the idea is to demonstrate externally what's spiritually taking place within. And so what exactly does he desire for his readers to show forth? He desires for them to show forth the same zeal and eagerness, the same diligence. That same diligence, again going back to verse 10, that manifested itself in good works, in labor of love and in service to others. So we can understand the writer to be saying this. He's saying, I am pastorally passionate about you demonstrating both in word and in deed the same zeal, the same diligence that you've demonstrated and are demonstrating by loving and serving one another in faith, by grace, for the glory of God's name. He's saying, I earnestly desire and long for each and every one of you to press on ahead onto maturity to obtain, as he continues to write here, the full assurance of hope until the end. The writer's desire, his desire, his yearning for his readers and for us is that we show the same diligence of works and labor of love and service with the result of being fully assured hope. Now the grammar here is absolutely clear that the idea is result-oriented. I want you to do this, do this, so that this results, so that this happens. It's result-oriented. I want you to show the same diligence in working and loving and serving with the result that you might have full assurance of hope until the end. This to say that the assurance of salvation isn't just is. It doesn't just exist. 
It doesn't just exist like some kind of figment of the imagination, but rather, the assurance of salvation is the fruit of action. It's something that has within itself evidence to show forth. It has proof. It can be traced back to something apart from itself. Which means, assurance of salvation requires diligence. Diligence that's worked in the past. Diligence that's working now in the present. And diligence that will continue to work on in the future. Now again, notice, the writer of Hebrews doesn't want you just to have generic assurance here. But he desires you to have Full assurance. This word that's used here in the Greek is a word that literally communicates a type of assurance that is entirely confident. It's a word that communicates an assurance that is thoroughly rich with certainty. Assurance that is absolute and resolute in its nature. The 17th century Dutch theologian, a man by the name of Herman Witsius, he writes this regarding full assurance. He writes, Full assurance, according to its etymology, is a word that denotes a carrying with full sail. The metaphor being taken from ships with their sails that are filled with favorable winds. And so the idea here that the author is presenting of having assurance that's full is one that communicates someone being filled up and carried about by diligence. Like the sail of a boat filled with winds and and the winds moving it to action. Christians alike are to be filled with the winds of faith moved to diligence that then drives us to the full assurance of hope that lasts forever. The kind of assurance that drives us to to look to Christ. The kind that's rooted in the Son. The kind that in Christ all things are yes and amen. Recognizing that God will never go back on any of His promises. So that you might sing with full assurity, with surety even in the darkest of times, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed what? Assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed His own blood for my soul. And thus we can say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Beloved, God wants each and every one of us in here, each and every one of you, to have the kind of zeal that demonstrates work and love and service so that you can have full assurance of hope. For how long? We read here until the end. God desires for each and every believer in here tonight to be strong and steady, sure and steadfast and sure until the very end. Now, there are too many, quote-unquote, so-called Christians today that desire so badly 
to have assurance without ever wanting to be diligent in the things of God. Do you know people like this? Are you like this? The absence of love for God and the absence of love for His people is very telling of the condition of your assurance, is it not? The absence of love for God and His people manifests itself in an absence of works and love and service, which then results in a lack of assurance. Yet on the flip side, the unshakable love for God and His people, which then manifests itself in works and love and service, in faith in Christ, that is what results in a bona fide assurance. Now I need to note that this isn't everything there is to be said about assurance, but this is one layer to the whole. But what we clearly find here in our passage tonight is that the showing of the same diligence until the end, the showing of that diligence is an inescapable and unavoidable part of assurance. And that outworking of faith that makes its way into diligence is the fruit of God's grace and a demonstration of a real and authentic, a living and active faith. Friends, I believe I can say that many of us have grown far too accustomed into thinking that works is bad and faith is good. Perhaps you think like this. Too accustomed into believing that we can't look to works because after all, it's all about faith. I believe that for many of us, or for many of those who are often found touting, and I hear this all the time, it's all about faith, it's all about faith, it's all about faith, it's not about works. It's all about faith. Works don't save you. The people who often talk like this are often those who want salvation without having to live a life of obedience. Now this is what I call easy believism. But beloved, I tell you that that kind of thinking, that kind of saying is absolutely wrong and unbiblical. Faith and works in Christ are all alike good. It's works without faith, works in the absence of genuine faith in Christ. That's bad. But you must know that in that same vein, it's faith without any works that's just as baseless and wrong. That's what he's saying here. Faith without any works, that's an empty faith. faith. It's, a, it's a useless kind of faith. This is exactly why Paul can write in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, while simultaneously write in Philippians 2, 12, work out your salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he can say those two things without contradicting himself. Why? Because faith and works go hand in hand, one to the other. William Booth does well to write. He says, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step, legs like the legs of, of men walking, first faith, then works, then faith again, and then works again until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. And it's within this Christian walk, if I can say that, this Christian walk that we then find the assurance of salvation radiating like the sun. The writer in Hebrews, or rather in verse 11, he desires 
each and every one of you to obtain this assurance. He's saying, I want you to have an abundance of assurance. I want you to have an assurance that's filled to the brim, one that stretches into eternity. That's why I'm telling you to be diligent in doing all these things, to be diligent in your works, to be diligent to love the Lord, to be diligent in your service to your brothers and service to your sisters in Christ. Now verse 12, our second point, we move on to the assurance manifested. We read here in verse 12, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, so that, again we see result, so that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The result of obtaining assurance manifests itself in two specific ways here. In the negative and in the positive. The writer instructs his readers to obtain through the same diligence the full assurance of hope so that they do not become sluggish. Now there's something about this that the natural human way of thinking, especially us in this 21st century, that doesn't like, that doesn't like this. It's something that, um, something that we don't like. We, it's because we want something that's a, uh, easier and a little bit more comfortable for us. Because I'm sure that there are some of you out there who simply want to, I hope this doesn't describe you, but there are some of those out there who want to simply obtain assurance so that, for the reason, so that you can relax. Some of you out there want to obtain this assurance so that you wouldn't have to worry, so that you can I don't know, go about enjoying the comforts of this world until drop dead. But we see here that the logic is very clear and compelling. The writer says, I want you to have full assurance so that you don't become slackers. I want you to have full assurance so that you don't become slackers. In other words, genuine faith that obtains full assurance doesn't lead to a life of passivity, but rather to a life filled with activity. Authentic assurance drives each and every Christian believer to work out their salvation to the glory of God. Philip Hughes, the commentator, writes, Arrested and stagnant growth, whether it's physical or spiritual, is nothing but a great tragedy. The Christian life must be marked by progress and perseverance. Its its direction must be onward and upward. This to say that the invitation to faith and assurance is not an invitation to inactivity, but to a pilgrimage of Christian perseverance that sees Christ not only as the source of salvation, but as the goal of salvation. Not just as the beginning of salvation, but the ends as well. The writer is communicating here that, that failure to show the same diligence will inevitably result in becoming sluggish. 
lazy. In the translation that I prefer here, dull. Now, if you can recall with me, this word dull is actually the same exact word that really set this whole section off back in Hebrews 5.11. We read in chapter 5, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. And here it is. Since you have become dull, dull of hearing. What's the writer, the writer doing here? Trying to get at. The writer, he's expressed concern about his readers' condition. He writes, since you've become dull of hearing. Then he moves on to Hebrews chapter 6, 4 verse 6, where he then tells them that this dullness is a dangerous condition. A condition that could and will lead, if you keep on this path, lead to them falling away. That he moves on to the fact that he's convinced that they're not going to fall away and that they're going to continue in good works and love and service. And finally, now in our passage, he begins to explain that he longs for them to have full assurance so that they don't become dull. And so if you were to take a step back and if we were to trace this thread, what we would quickly find is that we would have come full circle back to where we first began with dullness. But within this circle, this, this cycle, what we find here is this theological tension that's been intentionally designed by God to prompt us to keep on going and to keep on persevering to the end. In other words, true biblical assurance shouldn't leave us feeling like we've finished the race but rather that we, can, that we can and will finish this race of faith in the power and by the grace of God. Just as the Bible never contradicts itself, the Bible never promises us a tension-free, easy life like so many people want. A.W. Pink writes this, To the Christian, no furloughs are granted to those called upon to fight the good fight of faith. There's no discharge from that warfare as long as we're left upon the battlefield. Which is again to reiterate that for those of you who are filled with assurance are those who are with great certainty driven to persevere to the end. To finish this life glor gloriously by faith in Christ and for the glory of God. So we find here that failure to show diligence is in essence to be dull. And then that dullness runs contrary to a full assurance of hope and faith and patience. And the conclusion to take away from all of this is that, friends, if you're a spiritual sluggard, if you're spiritually dull, then you're spiritually dead and you have absolutely no grounds for any kind of assurance. No faith, no evidence. No evidence, no assurance. It's that simple. Often make it harder than it really is. Another way to put it, being a spiritual sluggard is an utter contradiction to the full assurance 
or rather to full assurance, because full assurance inoculates you from being a sluggard. Now that's the negative. I want you to have full assurance so that you don't become dull. Now on to the positive. He writes, he instructs us in the middle of verse 12, he writes, be imitators. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. By instructing his readers to be imitators, the writer isn't saying that we should just go about through the motions like a, like a robot or like a cyborg, but that we should look to and emulate the faithful who've gone ahead before us. Imitation here, in other words, is a good thing. It's a positive thing. In fact, we'll study this next week. I believe Pastor Dave will be preaching on this passage. But the writer proceeds to exhibit, verse 13 and on, Abraham as the model for imitation. And as many of you already know, as we continue to study in that great chapter, in chapter 11, we'll get there one day, that the writer continues to exhibit the faithful of which whose faith we're to emulate. But again, more on this next week. And overall, what we find here in verse 12 is the writer laying out for us two very simple options. You could either be dull, a spiritual sluggard who ends up having his assurance dried up and blown away and is in danger of not pressing ahead and then be in danger of actually falling away. Or you can be the kind of people who's diligent like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses, filled with the assurance of hope firm until the very end. And beloved, there's no in-between here, if you've noticed that. There's no such thing as dull diligence if you're trying to look for that, trying to find that sweet spot, right? There's no such thing as partial saving obedience. You can't have salvation and just go on and do your own thing. It doesn't work like that. The point that the writer's trying to drive out here with relentless force is that the attaining, the certainty of the full assurance of hope, it manifests itself in imitating those who through faith and patience, or if you want to say through patient faith or persevering faith, inherit and are inheriting the promises of God. And with all of that said, I don't want you leaving here tonight thinking that what this message is all about is for you to to just go back out into the world and start getting busy into saving yourself. It's not what I want you to do. I don't want you to go out back into your jobs, into your homes, and start getting busy into saving yourselves. And I have to say this with absolute clarity because this is how we're naturally prone to hearing these things. I don't want you to go out thinking, well, if I just do something nice to somebody, maybe pay for somebody's coffee at Starbucks tomorrow or change someone's tire on the side of the road or do the dishes for my wife or husband for a week, then I'll be saved. I'll I'll have assurance that way. Maybe if I start putting more money into the offering box, then that way I can secure my salvation and then I'll know I'm saved and I have full assurance. But beloved, that's not what we read here. Works in and of themselves can never make your faith genuine. 
but rather it's the existence of genuine faith in Christ that then drives you to work. This is what the writer wants for you to know with absolute certainty tonight, that genuine faith works. And works that are done by faith in Christ is genuine. Authentic Christian faith Authentic Christian faith is what produces diligence in works, in love and service. And that diligence then in turn strengthens and fills up assurance. And when the sail of our assurance is filled with the winds of faith, it then cultivates and moves you to greater faith. And it moves you to a greater earnestness for the love for God and His people. And that's the equation here. That's how it works. Friends, there's a great beauty. I mean, this is beautiful. There's a great beauty to be found here. Instead of having this downward spiral from despair to despair, from doubt to doubt, always anxious, always unsure, God wants for you to know, hear this, God wants for you to know that there exists a glorious upward spiral of diligence in faith. Diligence to a full assurance that then goes on to produce more faith and patience, which in turn leads to more diligence that goes on to produce even greater assurance in faith. And this pattern goes on and on and on. This is a spiral that keeps on giving and keeps on building upon itself. And again, as I stated earlier, it's within this Christian walk, this pattern of faith in works and faith in works, where we find within that relationship the assurance of our salvation. This is the reason why Christians can be so joyful, most productive, most useful and happy. Because it's to the people of God alone who live in and breathe in the deep air of assurance, of hope, firm until the very end. Despite all the trials and tribulations, despite all the challenges and sorrows that this life has to throw at you, it's because despite all these things, it's the very will and desire of our Heavenly Father to see all of us, to see each and every one of His children make it to our journey's end, and that with the full assurance of faith. Brothers and sisters, if there's any of you out here struggling with assurance, look to this text and consider what it calls you to do. If you're struggling, this text calls you to an exhibition of genuine faith and diligent work and love and service. And many of you don't like to hear this because you want, again, something quick and easy and painless and comfortable. You want something convenient to bring you out of this despair, but What I need for you to know this evening is that there's a great beauty to this concept of assurance, and it's this. is that when we begin to get our eyes off of ourselves and put our faith to work and remain vigilant and diligent in loving and serving and doing all that God calls us to do and be through His Word in faith, it's it's then at that moment that God does amazing things in restoring our assurance. If you lack assurance tonight, don't give yourself into this sluggishness that despair calls you into. But rather, press on ahead with eyes off of yourself to Christ. 
knowing that the God who promises all things is faithful to bring all things to pass. And it's through all the zeal and all the diligence, the pressing on ahead in faith and love and works that's then used by God as the ordinary means to aid His children in their confidence in Him as they see Him at work within their lives. Increasing their faith and their patience. Sustaining them to persevere until the very end. And so, may God grant Himself to all who are here. May He instill within each and every one of you deep and full assurance, one that recognizes that you're an heir of all of His promises, that they're yours. Now in closing, it's for you to know that this doctrine of Christian assurance, this doctrine, assurance, belong solely to the people of God. Which, are, which is also to say on the flip side, for those of you in here tonight without Christ, friends, there exists for you another kind of assurance. The assurance of condemnation. It's a scary thing, but it's promised to you. If you're here tonight without Christ, It's for me to warn you that you are at this very moment in a place of great danger. It's for me to warn you that you're not at this very moment just living a life that's single-handedly devoted uh, to yourself, but you're devoted to diligently working yourself into that full assurance of condemnation. And it's a condemnation that lasts forever until the very end. And friends, I say to you that more than being sluggish and Lazy, more than being dull. Friends, you are dead. You are dead in sin and trespasses and without hope. And the only solution that exists to go from this assurance of condemnation to the assurance of salvation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Unbeliever, you must repent and confess your sins. And it's to the Savior that you must trust as your Lord and Savior. And by God's grace and mercy, more than imitating the faithful saints who've gone ahead and paved the way, it is to Christ you must not only imitate, but it's to Christ you must obediently follow in faith. So that as you, saved by faith and moved by grace of God, through much diligence obtain the full assurance of salvation that it might then manifest itself in you in such a way that it begins to preserve you. You begin to persevere. It begins to hold you and keep you until the very end by the promises of God that you've inherited in the person of Christ Jesus. And I will say this time and time again, and I believe this, this is God's will for you. Friends, God desires for each and every one of us in here to be saved, and to be kept in Christ. So I urge you, especially those who are yet without Christ, to call upon His name, to call upon the One who is forever faithful. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are often slow to learn, prone to forget, and unsteady in our love for You. That we often find our hearts absent of deep earnestness for the things above, our days left without prayer, our 
love left in poverty, our heavenly race sluggish, our conscience stained and hardened, our days wasted, and our our opportunities unspent. But Lord, despite all of this, You are faithful. Your love steadfast and never ceasing, and Your mercies new morning by morning. So Lord, we pray that by faith, that it would be the very desire of our hearts to run with this same diligence to the full assurance of hope and that to the very end. That it would be our life's chief end to see Christ and to know Christ and to see Him magnified and glorified by all. And so we come and we pray all this by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the means of Christ the Son, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen.